for that prayer, Roger. We appreciate it so much. Um, this morning, before I begin, I would like to introduce to everybody, I know those of you who are in Sunday school already know this, but Jason and Tammy Hughes. Jason and Tammy, there, there they are. Would you just stand up there for a minute? I just want everyone to see them over there in the back there. So you can, you can sit back down now, but thank you so much. Um, Jason shared with us during Sunday school, we just gave an excellent presentation. He and Tammy are missionaries with Ethnos 360. To, um, they are church planters in Papua New Guinea. And uh, Tammy is John and Linda Brooks' daughter, so they have a close relationship with our church family. We are so thankful for them. And I just wanted to share with you, as I shared with uh, Sunday School, uh, that um, it was our intention to take the Hughes on for financial support. And so we scheduled them and we had planned on voting on their support. And in the meantime, they gained 100% of their support. So um, in essence, uh, they don't need our financial support. However, um, we want to become part of their prayer support team. And we think that's very important. So even though we won't be supporting them financially because they don't need it, uh, we do want to be part of their important uh, prayer team. So I just wanted you to get to know them. And so when we sing our closing song, I've asked uh, Jason and Tammy to make their way out to the foyer. They have a little table with prayer cards out there. And I think, isn't there a place where they can sign up for your email? if they would like that also. And so they'll leave during the closing song. Please, uh, if you don't know them, I know some of you know them because they've attended actually quite a few of our services over the course of the spring and summer. Uh, but if you don't know them, get to know them and welcome them um, this morning. Well, we are continuing on in our study of the Gospel of John this morning. And we do come, as Roger mentioned in his prayer, we do come to John 17 and John, excuse me, Jesus' great high priestly prayer. It is hard, maybe impossible to overemphasize how important John chapter 17 is. We're going to take four weeks to look at it. I've um, separated it into four parts, and this, so this is the first of four parts that we will look at in John chapter 17, John, or excuse me, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we're going to start this morning by looking at verses 1 through 5. We've been looking at the upper room discourse, John chapters 13 through 16, and some would include chapter 17 because, and here's why, folks, Jesus is still with his disciples, and I want you to know that as we look at this prayer. He's still with his disciples, the 11. Judas is gone, about to betray him, but he's still with them when he prays this prayer. And to me, that's awesome. He lifts up his eyes and prays while his disciples are still with him at this Passover feast. And this is what he says in the first five verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, our first point this morning is the greatest prayer. Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 has been called the greatest prayer ever prayed. Greatest prayer ever prayed because it's Jesus' prayer. It's Jesus' prayer to his Father. Rarely in Scripture do we get the opportunity to actually listen in on Jesus' praying. That is an honor. That is an eternal pleasure. And we are so grateful that we get to hear him pray. Now, there are other times in the Gospels where we see Jesus pray. He prays on the cross. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays just before he raises Lazarus from the dead. So there are brief times that we hear him pray or see him pray, but nothing like this, nothing like this entire chapter. And I just want to encourage all of us this morning, this is Jesus praying. I mean, we know Mark 135, that famous verse that Jesus rose early in the morning and went out to a desolate place while it was still dark and prayed. We know he did that, but we don't know what he prayed. And I don't know about you, but I not only want to know that he prayed, I want to know what he prayed. And so we get some tremendous insight. And this is beautiful insight into the Trinity because we have God the Son praying. When you think about it, we have God the Son praying to God the Father. It is an awesome experience. And in verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words. That's chapters 13 through 16. Jesus is instructing his disciples before he goes to the cross. This is the night. I remind you again, this is the night before his crucifixion. He is preparing them for what will be the most difficult time in their lives. But not only for that, he is preparing them for the cross, for the resurrection, and the ascension, and as we have looked at for the last month, he is preparing them for the coming of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who will come to live in them. And by means of the Holy Spirit, Jesus will live in them. And now he prays. Now he prays. And again, it isn't until chapter 18 that it says that they left the upper room and went from there. But it's interesting too, I just want to mention this briefly. It says that when Jesus had spoken this, these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So that's how he prayed. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. That was a very common Jewish prayer posture. And it reminds us, because that's where God's throne is, in heaven, it reminds us 
that there are many different kinds of prayer postures. If you study through the scriptures, and I think, and that's a whole separate study, it would be interesting to see the different bodily prayer postures that were used in scripture. Sometimes they were down on their faces before the Lord. Sometimes they sat in sackcloth and ashes in great repentance and remorse before the Lord. In 1 Chronicles, it tells us that when Solomon prayed, he spread out his hands and lifted his eyes to heaven. He stood and prayed. When Abraham interceded or sought to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah with the Lord, before the angels went to destroy it, he stood and talked with the Lord. He just stood there and had a conversation with him, which reminds us that there are all different kinds of prayer postures. And I say that to you because in America or even in Western culture, we tend to think of prayer as being on our knees with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. That's how most of us grew up learning to pray. You pray, you get down on your knees, you bow your head, you close your eyes. There's nothing wrong with that. Did you know that actually that prayer posture isn't necessarily found in scripture but came from history? It's, and again, it's not a bad thing. Two semesters ago in our Wednesday night men's Bible study, we went through a whole semester just on prayer. We went through a curriculum called the Battle Plan for Prayer. And they talked about this, that the prayer posture we are most familiar with actually came from the ancient world when people would go before a king who ruled over an empire. He would be sitting on his throne. You would come before the king. The king would hold out his hand, and you would put your hands above and below his hands. Then you would bow down on your knees. You would bow your head sometimes close your eyes and you would swear complete allegiance to the king and his kingdom. Well, the Christians saw that and they said, our king is Jesus. And so we're going to bow and do that. We're going to swear allegiance to our king and his kingdom and that our king is Jesus. That's a good thing. But I just want you to know But that's not the only way you can pray. You can literally pray anywhere, anytime. And I just want you to know that. Sometimes I've gone, even gone to pastor's meetings, and they'll say things like, well, we're going to do some real prayer today. We're going to get down on our knees. We're going to kneel before our, you know, on our chairs, and then we're going to bow our heads. We're going to do some real prayer. Well, that's not necessarily real prayer. Real prayer is any prayer. In fact, if you pray while you're driving to work, we would prefer that you don't bow your head and close your eyes. <laughs> but that's kind of how we grew, grew up. You know, I grew up in a, in a tradition where at the end of every service, it was kind of, okay, every head bowed, every eye closed. You ever hear that? Oh, yeah, that's what we were always told. Nothing, again, nothing wrong with that. But there are many many different prayer postures. I'm going to share something with you that some of you have probably heard a hundred times, but I'm going to say it anyway because we need to hear it again. When it comes to prayer, 
It's not the position of your body, it's the attitude of your heart. Okay, when it comes to prayer, it's not the position of your body, it's the attitude of your heart that really matters to God. Jesus prays, sitting or reclining with his disciples at the Passover supper, which became the Lord's Supper, lifts up his eyes to heaven and prays with them there. To the best of our knowledge, they are still there as he prays. Well, it is now time. It is now time for God the Father and God the Son to receive great glory. At the end of verse 1, Jesus says, Father. He prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Now, if you are working through the Gospel of John as we have been, this is a momentous occasion because this term, the hour, has been used throughout the Gospel of John. We saw it early in the Gospel of John that they couldn't do anything to Jesus. They couldn't harm him. They couldn't even arrest him. Remember? Because his hour had not yet come. And we see that phrase repeated, his hour had not yet come. Well, folks, now his hour has come. His hour has come. We have seen this, him alluding to this earlier in the upper room discourse, but now it's come. Now is the time. And I just want to try to impress upon you how important this hour is. The hour has come. The hour has come in all of eternity for Jesus to give his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. The hour has come when he who knew no sin would be made sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God in him. The hour has come to fulfill all the great prophecies of the Old Testament referring to the death of the Messiah. The hour has come when the serpent's head will finally be crushed. The hour has come when all of the symbols of sacrifice in the Old Testament Levitical system would finally be fulfilled. The hour has come when the true Lamb of God was slain for the sins of the world. The hour has come that every prophet spoke of and every person's heart has longed for. It was the hour of God's great triumph over the prince of this world, his great triumph over the kingdom of darkness. It was the hour for why Jesus came into this world. And Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and God the Father and God the Son are going to receive great glory on the cross. And I want you to think with me about this as well. How is God glorified in perhaps the most tragic death ever died? How is God glorified? How is the Father glorified through the Son by his death on the cross? And that's because when you look at the cross, you see God's glory displayed in a way perhaps it is nowhere else displayed. 
for it's at the cross that you see his love as he sends his son to die in our place. It is there you see his grace. It is there you see his mercy. It is there you see his power over sin and death and hell and Satan. It is there you see his righteousness because he cannot overlook your sin. It is there that he is the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. It is on the cross that you see the holiness of God as he turns his back on his son's sin-bearing sacrifice. It is there you see his goodness as Jesus utters those unforgettable words first to the dying thief on the cross today. Today you will be with me in paradise. And then generally for the crowd, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's on the cross that you see God's glory on display in terms of his wrath and his justice and his judgment as he pours it all out on his son. It is there that you see the great wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of God for in this death, God accomplishes his great purposes and accomplishes our salvation. And so Jesus says, Father, glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 2, Jesus prays, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 2 is one of those verses, and I know that many of you have experienced this. You're in a small group Bible study. Maybe you're the leader. Maybe you're just one of the participants. Then you go home, and during the week, you're doing an in-depth study of the passage you're looking at. And all of a sudden, there's a verse that you see clearer than you've ever seen it before. That happened to me this week with verse 2. I've read verse 2 many times. But when I began to really look at it and study it, there is so much here. One of those where this could be a separate message. It says, since you have given, he's basically saying to the Father, since you have given me authority over all flesh. That term, all flesh, is a Hebraic phrase, which means all people. It means all peoples. You, Father, have given me authority over all peoples. I want you to see with me this morning that verse 2 is a great missionary verse. So appropriate that we have Jason and Tammy Hughes with us this morning. Because what Jesus is praying is, Father, you have given me authority over all people groups. That's what this says. Folks, what Jesus is praying here is that I know, Father, because you've given me authority over all flesh, all flesh, all people groups, I know that there are going to be people from every people group who come into the kingdom, people from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And when you compare John 17, 2 with Revelation 5, it is an amazing and beautiful thing. Father, you have given me authority over all peoples, over all flesh, here's why, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, have given me. Father, they're going to come. I know they're going to come. You know they're going to come, I pray, because you have given me authority over the whole world, over all peoples. And so in verse 3, he prays, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Anytime you see in the Bible, and this is eternal life, you wake up and pay attention. I want to know what eternal life is. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'm going to have you just hold on to that for a few minutes. I'm going to come back to it at the end of the message. Okay, I'm going to come back to verse 3 at the end of the message. Our second point this morning is perfect obedience. Jesus perfectly obeyed God the Father in every minute detail of his life. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Father, Father, I've glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work, everything that you gave me to do. When Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, he went on to live a perfectly obedient life to the law of the Lord. We say yes, and he is, he was sinless. But in his sinlessness, he perfectly obeyed every minute detail of the law of the Lord. He had to in order to become our sin sacrifice, in order to become the perfect Lamb of God. He could not disobey, not even in one point. And here's the amazing thing. Here's the thing that ought to have us on our faces. His perfect, his perfectly obedient life, perfectly obeying every minute detail of the law of the Lord when you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when you invite him to come into your life. Jesus' perfect obedience is applied to you. When God the Father looks at you in Christ, he sees the perfect obedience of his Son. When you receive Christ as Savior, and I've shared this with you many times, it is the great exchange. You give Christ all your sins, and he, takes, he has taken them upon himself and died and was punished for them. In return, you get his righteousness. Getting his righteousness, which we call in theology imputed righteousness, means that his perfect obedience is applied to your life. That's how you get to go to heaven. You can't earn your salvation, but Jesus earned it for you. You can't earn your salvation, but Jesus earned it 
for you. And then in verse 5, he prays, and now, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And of course, part of that accomplished work will be his death and resurrection. And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is looking not only to the cross, but to the resurrection, to the ascension, to that time when he will be seated at the right hand of God the Father in the place of highest authority in the universe. Father, in essence, he's saying that, Father, I'm coming home. You sent me here to the earth. I laid aside the full use of all my attributes. I humbled myself and came to the earth and accomplished everything you gave me to do. And now I'm coming home. He was coming back to the glory of the Father, which he had from all eternity. He is now part of that glory is that he's now going to intercede for every person who believes in him as Savior. Right now, every minute of every day, Jesus intercedes for you before the Father. And not only that, Jesus is going to go to heaven and rejoice in watching his salvation plan unfold as you and you and you come to know him as Savior, but not only you and you and you, but people from every people group around the world. And our missionaries are out there watching them come because Jesus has returned to his glory. This is Philippians 2. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. This is Hebrews 12 too. This will be on the screen for you. Many of you know this well. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That little phrase, who for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? It was the joy of going back to the Father, of having the glory that he'd always had. It is the joy of interceding for you every minute of every day. It is the joy of watching his salvation plan unfold in every part of the world. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, I want us to go back to verse 3 and think carefully about the term eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. I want to say to you that eternal life is not just a quantity of life, it is a quality of life. In fact, I would say to you that it is a quality of life before it is a quantity of life. Sometimes when we think about eternal life, we think, oh, I'm going to live forever and ever. And you will in Christ. But there's something about eternal life that's even more important in how long you live. It's who you become. Eternal life is knowing the only true God personally and intimately. I know we say this a lot, but you have a personal relationship with God. You are born again. You become a new creation in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. You have the living and resurrected life of Jesus living in you. The helper has come. He has indwelt you, and by means of the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes to live in you and reside in you forever and will be with you always, even to the end of the age. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You can only have eternal life through Jesus Christ and his life-giving sacrifice and his victorious resurrection. And when you know the only true God, you know Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the only true God. How many times have we seen in the Gospel of John, if you know the Father, you know the Son. If you know the Son, you know the Father. They're inseparable. They're distinct persons within the Trinity, but they are the one true living God. This is eternal life that you know God, that you know him personally and intimately through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why we say so often, eternal life is a gift. It is not a prize to be obtained. It is a gift to be received. It's all been done for you. You humbly receive it as a gift from God. And so as I close, I just want to go over something that I know you know well, and I know you've heard hundreds of times, but I think it's good just to go over it. How does a person receive this gift? How does a person receive eternal life? First, you must humble yourself before God. In 1 Peter 5, 5, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud and the arrogant but he gives grace to the humble. You must admit that you are a sinful person in need of a Savior, and your sins need to be dealt with. And you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead to pay for your sins, and that he is the only payment that God will accept. The reason he died died and rose again was to pay for your sins 
then that payment is the only payment that God will accept. Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself, and that's why you can only receive it as a gift. And if you are to know, if you are to have eternal life and to know the only true God, there must be a time in your life where you individually, personally invite Jesus Christ to come into your life. We have seen this in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. John, chapter 1, it says, Yet to all who received him, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We know from Romans chapter 10 that it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When you think of verses like that, add to that list John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let me ask you this morning, has there ever been a time like that in your life? Has there ever been a time where you've repented of your sin and you've individually asked Jesus to come into your life? If not, that time can be right now, right where you're sitting. You can ask Jesus to come into your life. You could go home today in the privacy of your bedroom, and you could invite Jesus Christ to come into your life. Folks, that's why we're having vacation Bible school this week, not just so they can play games and have snacks, so that boys and girls can hear the great gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they've never received him as Lord and Savior, they can receive him. Nothing is more important in your life. Let's pray together. Father, through your holy word, we get to listen in on Jesus' high priestly prayer. We thank you for that. Our prayer is that in everything we say and do, whether as individuals as a, or as a church, that God the Father and God the Son would be glorified. And may every one of us, every single one of us here, make sure that we possess eternal life, that we know the only true God through his Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we always pray. Amen.